Hi, this is Dr. John Ankerberg. I invite you to dig into God's Word today with my dear friend, the late Dr. Wayne Barber, as he leads you verse by verse through the Bible. Joshua chapter 7. We're going to be talking about very, very much like we've heard sung. It's incredible journeys is what we're doing. It's a series, and we're taking it out of the book of Joshua. We're not teaching verse by verse, but we're pulling out things that will help us in our Christian walk. As they inherited a land, we in, inherit in Christ a life. Their covenant was external. Ours is internal and eternal. And so the same way they experienced the land that was already theirs is the same way we experience the life that is already ours. It's only by faith. It's only by faith. But today we want to talk about, it, it, many things are involved, and we've already looked at six of them, but this morning we're going to look at the fact that this journey includes realizing the peril of unconfessed sin. Part of our journey is to understand when we sit upon sin, and we don't deal with it, we allow it to lay, it brings devastating results. And that's what we want to look at today in chapter 7 of Joshua. Gypsy Smith, a British evangelist that lived from 1860 to 1947, was asked one time, how do you start a revival? You know what he said? He said, go home, lock yourself into your room, kneel down in the middle of the floor, draw a chalk mark around yourself, and ask God to start a revival inside that chalk mark. And he said, when God has answered that prayer, the revival will be on. But what does that revival look like? And Billy Graham, after a successful, beautiful crusade, many people came to know Christ. Somebody asked him, is this revival? And he said, no. When revival comes, he said, I expect to see two things which we have not seen yet. There will be a new sense of the holiness of God and of the sinfulness of sin on the part of believers. Brand new awareness of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin. With those two illustrations in mind, revival being an, a, a thought, an umbrella thought that covers everything we're going to talk about today. The song that we just heard sing, sung from, from Debbie and the other songs we've heard this morning. I want us to ease into what Joshua is going to teach us today. Even though as New Covenant believers, we have a brand new nature in Christ. Did you know that? Peter tells us that in 2 Peter. We have partaken of the divine nature. Here's the problem though. We still have our own flesh to deal with until we see the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul in Galatians 5, 16 and 17 calls this a war. It's a spiritual war. The flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh. It's a constant tug of war in our life to do as God says to do or to do as I want to do. When we choose our flesh rather than surrendering to God's will, that choice that we, we just made is what sin is all about. That is sin. When we choose to go our way instead of God's way, the root of all sin, and I'm probably going to need to say this about ten different times to make sure we get it, the root of all sin is unbelief, period. Let me say that again. The root of all sin is unbelief. Sin is when we simply do not trust God 
to meet the needs of our life, to be the essence of what we're craving for in our inner, inner man. We don't trust God. There's something else that has filled its place. Instead of turning to God, we turn to this, we turn to that, whatever that might be. It's just when we simply don't trust God, period. One of the beautiful pictures of this is in Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2. Some translations lead you to think differently about this verse, but let me explain it to you. It says in verse 1, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. And then he asks a question, from where shall my help come? Many times we read that and say, oh, my help comes from the mountains. No, no, no. He says in verse 2, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Do we understand why he says that? The high places, the mountains were considered as holy in their culture. All of the idols of the people were put into the high places, the things that they worshipped in their lives. They would call upon them. This is why when Israel would go in to take a land, God said, tear down the high places. Tear down the high places. That's where the idols are. It's Caesarea Philippi at the mouth of the Jordan. Right there in the midst of that mountain with all the different idols inside of it, he says, who do men think that I am? And that's when Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, no matter of men reveal this to you, this was a revelation of the Spirit of God. Right in the midst of all the idols, the high places that men turn to. Now, put that in perspective. When we choose to trust in the high places of our flesh, and you can fill in that blank, whatever it is, whatever the place is that you run to to find whatever it is you're looking for, and it's not God, then that will bring about a spiritual drought in your life. If you're a believer looking to the high places of what you have decided will satisfy you and you're not looking to Christ, you're in a spiritual drought. And thank God he allows this to happen. It's so interesting to me that these spiritual droughts, which are just consequences of our own personal sin, are very rarely noticed as God's blessings in our life. Very rarely does somebody say, thank you, God, for the spiritual drought that I'm going through. We don't even realize that the truth is he loves us enough to let us go through those droughts. He loves us enough to withdraw the, the realization of his presence in our life. Why? So that we'll be brought to the end of ourselves and understand that his way is the only way. It's a blessing of God that we go through these droughts to bring us back to himself. There's nothing on the high places that can ever fill our life. When we confess our sin, and it's not just to get forgiveness. It's to appropriate the forgiveness we already have. Do we understand that? That he's already forgiven us for past, present, and future sin. But when we come and confess, we appropriate what's already ours. But there's something else. It's a cleansing. There's a cleansing in that confession. It's not that we get it as much as it's a cleansing to us. There's a cleansing in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a cleansing when it comes to a renewing of the fellowship that we can have intimately only with Him. And the book of Joshua is such a powerfully clear picture to us as New Covenant believers. We see in Joshua 7 that a man sinned and then he tried to hide it. His choice not only affected him, but all those in Israel around him. See, here's the point. None of us ever sins in a vacuum. None of us ever sins in a vacuum. In chapter 6, from all appearances, Israel fully obeyed God when they conquered Jericho and God's power. I mean, it was awesome. We celebrated that last week. 
But in chapter 7, it's going to show us that the whole nation was kept from rejoicing over the victory that God had brought to them because of one self-centered, selfish man. Isn't it interesting how sin will take you further than you ever wanted to stray, keep you longer than you ever dreamed you'd pay, and cost you more than you ever thought that you'd have to, to, to pay? Well, what we can learn from Joshua this morning, I don't think I got that right. Let me go back and do that again. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to stray, keep you longer than you ever intended to stay, and cost you more than you ever dreamed that you'd pay. Now, what, we, what can we learn about unconfessed sin? Now, understand what I'm saying. Sin has a consequence. We're talking about unconfessed sin. Sin that's not willing to be dealt with on a daily basis. What, how, what can we learn from Israel about that? There's three things that I want us to see today that I think will help us in our walk with the Lord Jesus. First of all, we see that unconfessed sin is a betrayal of our covenant with God and man. Unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin. Sin is, period. But unconfessed sin is what we're looking at today. Unconfessed sin is a betrayal of our covenant with God and man. John says in his epistle, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, for, and sin is lawlessness. So all sin is lawlessness. I'll do what I want to do. I'm not under anybody's command. But see, lordship and lawlessness are, are totally contrary to one another. If a person's under the lordship of Christ, he cannot live lawlessly. But sin is also something else. Sin is a betrayal of covenant. Now, in covenant, if you've ever been around the study of covenant, and most of us have here, but if you've ever been around the study of covenant, I even do covenant weddings this way. I help them to understand that in covenant, when you enter into covenant, which is what we have with God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ when we are saved, when you enter into covenant, you lose your right to independent living. You die to an old way of life and you enter into a newness of life. So look at verse 1 of chapter 7. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now what's he talking about? The ban we mentioned last week, we didn't spend many, any time with it, but the ban is back in chapter 6, verse 18 and 19. He says in verse 18 of chapter 6 of Joshua, But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them, and take some of the things under the ban, and make the camp of Israel accursed, and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and, and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So no soldier could take anything that was valuable. It was to go into the treasury of the Lord. Nobody could take it for himself. But a man named Achan could not resist the temptation. And he took some of the things that were under the ban that God had given to the people through Joshua, and he told nobody about it. This is a picture I want you to see. Note, note God's response to this in the last part of verse 1. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. God was not just offended by Achan's sin and his unwillingness to confess it. His anger was against the whole nation. And you think, well, why? Why would he be angry at the nation when only one man was selfish enough to disobey God? Because the nation of Israel was in covenant with God. And if you don't understand covenant, 
That's part of it. Covenant is the most binding relationship you can have. And when you enter into it, you enter into a brand newness of life. You enter into it to where two become one. It's an incredible picture. And they were in covenant with God. And therefore, as a result of that, they were in covenant with one another. The covenant was made with Abraham and circumcision was its sign. The covenant was passed on to Isaac and then passed on to Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And Israel had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. They were God's covenant people, and they were marked externally and by the way they lived. They were marked as a people who obeyed God. The way they dressed, the way they ate, the way they lived, everything was, was unto the Lord. But in Joshua chapter 5, remember Joshua's a new book. In Joshua chapter 5, after the horrible legacy of a sinful covenant-breaking generation, a generation that didn't even circumcise their children. The new generation of Israel had renewed their covenant after they crossed the Jordan River, which released them from the reproach of their parents. And it sent a signal, we are a new generation, not like our parents who chose to disobey God. We are going to obey God. We are in covenant with God. Each one was in covenant with one another. Therefore, as a unit, they were in covenant with one another. This is so incredible important to understand as a nation each member had a responsibility to god but also to man when one disobeyed it affected the whole and verse 11 and 12 show us that the whole nation was guilty because of one man's sin verse 11 says israel has sinned and they have transgressed my covenant which i commanded them and they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived moreover they have also put them among their own things and then it says therefore the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies they they turn their backs before their enemies for they have become accursed I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst do we understand that once we're in covenant with God as a believer we're now in covenant with one another that's why that's why Paul writes in Ephesians not to produce unity amongst the brethren preserve it it's already there you're already bound together in Christ. My daddy was in the Navy in World War II and he served on a destroyer escort, escorting a big fleet, escorting a carrier or something like that. And daddy said when he was in the Navy, when somebody did something wrong on that ship, they didn't just punish the one who did it wrong. They punished the whole ship. And my dad said when I got into the Navy and realized they were doing this, I thought that's the most unfair thing I've ever been around in my life until he began to understand what they were trying to show them. We are a unit. And what any one person does affects the whole of the ship. And he said after a while there was even an accountability that was built. All for one, one for all. Because everybody was accountable. If one person messed up, it had some type of effect on all of them. Now that's a secular illustration. But at the same time, that's kind of what I'm trying to say. And what God was saying to Israel, yes, Achan sinned, but all of Israel was affected. We're in covenant with God through Jesus Christ. Because of that, we are in covenant with one another. We're a unit, a covenant family, a family of God. And all sin has an effect. Personally, it has an effect. However, unconfessed sin has an uncontrollable effect. You cannot even determine when a person's not willing to deal with sin in his life. And thank God we're in the new covenant. But when a person's not willing to deal with sin in their lives, it affects somehow many, many more than what he ever could have dreamed. We must deal with personal sin on a daily basis because 
Unconfessed sin is a betrayal of our covenant with God and with man. But secondly, unconfessed sin, and we're looking at Achan, and we're looking at what happened to Israel. Unconfessed sin is a burden to the whole community of God. You know, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, some beautiful words here, after he talks about all things are from him and of him and through him and all these things, and he, 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 to God be the glory, and I'm summarizing that. Then in chapter 12, he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Be not conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Don't, don't let any man think more highly of himself than he ought to think. And then he says in verse 4, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. What one does to some extent affects others, not just himself. Achan's sin, unconfessed sin, he was not willing to deal with it, became a burden to the whole nation. And there's so many examples of this in Scripture. In Numbers chapter 12, we have the account of Miriam who didn't like Moses' new wife, and, and, or his wife. And so God struck her with leprosy. But because of her sin, for seven days, almost two million people were held back. They could not move. The sin of one person affected the whole nation. All because of the sin of one. We can look at David and the sin with Bathsheba and how the things happened there. He wasn't willing to bring it forth till Nathan the prophet came to him. And here's David, and he commits adultery with Bathsheba. Then he sends her husband Uriah to battle, and he's killed on the front lines. And how it affected his family. The child that was born was, was died. I mean, all the different consequences that come. We are members one of another. For instance... Sin in a husband or a wife's life can affect the whole family if it's unconfessed. And even if it's sin, it affects them. But unconfessed sin has a drastic result. A church is like this. You can have people discontinued in one ministry against another ministry, and it affects the life of the whole church. You can have a staff member on staff that has a bitter spirit, and that bitter spirit is going to affect everybody on the whole staff and eventually the whole church. Sin is a very costly thing. It cannot be swept under the rug. That's why we deal with it daily. Unconfessed sin is something that is heinous before God. It must daily be, sin must daily be put under the blood of Christ every single day of our life. As a result of Achan's sin and his unwillingness to confess it, Israel is miserably defeated in the next battle after Jericho. It says in verse 2, Now Joshua sent some men from Jericho to, and we say Ai, that is wrong. I've had Hebrew scholars tell me from everywhere, it's I. <laughs> I thought, isn't that interesting? The River Jordan backed up to the city of Adam where it all began to start with. And then the first defeat that they have in their first battle or second battle is I, the city of I, which is near Beth Haven, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out I. <laughs> it's obvious here that Joshua knows nothing about the sin that's in the camp. Joshua knows nothing what's been unconfessed about the man that's been very selfish in the camp. Verse 3 says, They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for there are just a few. And Joshua does something that's so out of character for him. He teaches every one of us. He listens to the spies. But there's no account of his seeking the advice and the wisdom of God. After all, they've just defeated Jericho, haven't they? Well, come on. 
And that's the biggest battle we're going to have. Come on, we don't need everybody on this. We can get her done. We can get her done. We don't need God on this one. We'll call you God. Don't you call us. We'll handle this one. You take the big things in our life. Verse 4. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. Can you believe this? 3,000? The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Sherebim and struck them down on the descent. So their hearts of the people melted and became as water. And then Joshua, in verse 6, tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. They could not understand. God, why did we not get the victory? God, they didn't know that there was sin in the camp that had been unconfessed. And the whole nation was held back because of one selfish man. Well, you see, not only had they been defeated, but in that defeat, their confidence that God was with them disappeared. And that is a critical thing to happen amongst God's people. Verse 7, Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan? Only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites? To destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. Come on, Joshua, are you kidding? And then he says in verse 8, Oh, Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? Then verse 9, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off your, our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? <laughs> Way to go, Joshua. It's so typical of our human flesh to blame God when the victory is not theirs, we thought it would be. We never seem to consider that sin might be in the camp. We never seem to consider the unconfessed sin that might be holding back the whole. So God answers Joshua and reveals the problem. He said, Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. And they have, have e even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turned their backs before their enemies, for they had become a curse. I will not be with you, God says, anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning, then you shall come near by your tribe. This is how they're going to find out. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families. And the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. It shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. Wow. Achan's sin was a burden to the whole nation because they could not progress any further into the land which was already there. And here we go again. No man sins in a vacuum. It always affects others around us. What was done in the shadows, God saw when the leaders of Israel had no clue whatsoever. They were moving in a direction they thought was right to I, not realizing they could move no further until the sin had been dealt with. Whoa. You know, I don't know what this does to you. I'm, I'm thankful we're under the new covenant. I'm thankful that, that God uses the old to help us understand better our walk with him. But I'll tell you what, the seriousness of sin, and particularly unconfessed sin. Yes, there are consequences to all sin, but we're not talking about 
confessed sin now, right now. He gives us the mercy to bear up under. What we're talking about is unconfessed sin. It's in the camp that's affecting everybody. Dwight L. Moody gives this account of God's breaking out in a meeting. And he traveled with a man by the name of Mr. Sankey that did the music. He said, one town that Mr. Sankey and myself visited, I'm quoting, for a, a week it seemed as if we were beating the air. There was no power in the meetings. At last, one day, I said that perhaps there was someone cultivating an unforgiving spirit. The chairman of our committee who was sitting next to me got up and left the meeting right in view of the audience. The arrow had hit the mark and gone home to the heart of the chairman of the committee. He had trouble with someone for about six months. He had once hunted up this man and asked him to forgive him. He came to me with tears in his eyes and said, I thank God you ever came here. That night, the inquiry room, the, when, the, when the decisions were made, was thronged. The chairman became one of the best workers I have ever known, and he has been active in Christian service ever since. And what El Dwight El Moody said, it was a sin of one man on the committee that got him there that was holding back the move of the Spirit amongst all the people. And he had to deal with it. He had to go to the person. He had to make it right. And God's Spirit was released amongst the people. Incredible. Unconfessed sin. It's a betrayal of our covenant with God. He said he has transgressed the covenant of God. We just read it. It's a burden to the community of God. It affects others that we don't even realize it's going to affect. And unconfessed sin, an unrepentant of sin, is a bearer of the consequences of God. It's a bearer of the consequences of God. We used to have a sign in front of the old Woodland Park that said, you are free to make any choice you want to make, but you're not free to choose its consequences. Boy, is that ever right. How appropriate here. In Aiken's case, the penalty was most severe. Is it always going to be that severe? That's not ours to call. We can't choose the consequence. In verse 16, so Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the family of Judah near, and he took the family of the Zerahites, and he brought the family of the Zerahites near, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. He brought his household near, man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, Son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah was taken. It's interesting how Achan didn't come forth. He sat back and watched the process, but it was the process that nailed him. Had he just gone on, but he didn't. He sat on that sin. He would not deal with it. Perhaps he was thinking that they'll never find out about me, but God already had him found out. Sin is never a secret to God. And this is my point. The, that's, uh, it's un uh, unconfessed sin is devastating. Unconfessed sin brings consequences that nobody can control at all. I'll always wonder this one thing, and I'll have to get to heaven to find out. If he would have voluntarily come forward, as soon as he did it, before they went to I, and done what was right, what could have been different about this story? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not God. Don't claim to be. But I've always wondered. He sat on it. And he let them go through a process that was lengthy and holding the people back to finally be exposed to where he was guilty. Then Joshua said to Achan, verse 19, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord. Now watch this carefully. The God of Israel, give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Do you realize that confession of sin brings glory to God? He said, Wayne, what are you talking about? You see, when we are owned up to our sin, then we're giving recognition to the Lordship of Christ 
what he has in our life. When, when a person comes forward, listen, that's not a, a fun thing. That's a very painful thing. But when a person's willing to own his own sin and come right before God, and if it requires before men, not always does it require that, but if it requires before men, then that gives glory to the Lordship of Christ in a person's life. When a person's not willing to deal with sin and then says he's under the Lordship of Christ, there's something very, very deceiving about that statement. But for Achan, it was too late. It was way too late. He didn't do what he should have done. Verse 20, so Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord. Caught the God of Israel. This is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and took 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. Behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. They took them from outside, from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the, the, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day, and the Lord turned from the, from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Everything associated with Achan was destroyed. And what's the principle? What do we learn from that? This is the Old Covenant. What do we learn from that? It teaches us that sin is serious and must be dealt with individually before it becomes corporate. If it's unconfessed sin, it's going to affect others that are around us. It's going, sin's going to affect others around us. But unconfessed sin brings a devastating result. Unconfessed sin doesn't just affect the one committing it by robbing him of his joy. It also affects those who are around him. We live under the new covenant, and that's important to remember that we're making a comparison here with the old and the new. A covenant that was made possible by Christ going to the cross and dying for that very sin. He paid our sin debt, debt we didn't know, or that he didn't know, and a debt that we couldn't pay. Our covenant is a covenant of grace. Does God kill those who, in our day, sin like, like Achan? Not, not on my understanding of that. He did with Ananias and Sapphira, but that's not a pattern of God. Could he? Absolutely he could anytime he chooses to. But you know what Achan's death should do this morning for all of us? It should remind us of how every one of us deserve exactly the same. That's the point that I want to get across. Every one of us deserve the same kind of death because every one of us has sinned and every one of us has gone periods of time without confessing that sin and dealing with it. It should cause us to come back to spiritual sanity and to thank God every day for His precious grace and His precious mercy that is so undeserving that when I look at Achan and realize what God did to him and I realize what needs to be done to me, I cry out to Him and God overwhelms me with His grace and His mercy. If we're not appreciative of that, then we're taking sin lightly in our life. We sin every day, every one of us. But we run to Him where we departed. And we, we confess and, re, and appropriate that forgiveness and, and the cleansing of the, even the guilt in our life. And He gives us the mercy to bear up under whatever consequences. But oh dear God, help us to see how grateful we need to be for His grace and mercy under the new covenant. Didn't happen that way in the old covenant. 
Thank God for Christ. We're in Him today. It would amaze us if every one of us would deal with personal sin every day. Anybody here besides me ever sat on sin and not dealt with it? Nobody but me. Man, I'm a bad guy. I also know better. Thank God. He'll bring me to a spiritual drought. And that spiritual drought is like that coal that's been taken out of the fire. It lays over here alone. And the heat of the fire no longer affects it. And the glow of the fire no longer reflects in it. And it lays there. It's a spiritual drought. I have been there. I could put a house number on it. And if we're not going to deal with sin, when God says it's sin, look out. Because we have no idea where the consequences of that refusal to deal with it are going to go. It would amaze us if we would deal with it every day, whatever it is. Then it would amaze us how this would free God's Spirit to work in our midst. It would amaze us. It would amaze us. But when it's not dealt with and it's hidden, the consequences are out of our control. You can make your choices, and many do. And they'll walk out of here today and say, I'm not listening to that. That's fine. But you cannot choose the consequence of that choice. Sin is a betrayal of our covenant with God. We entered into it as salvation. Sin is a burden upon the whole community of God. Because when one sins and doesn't confess it, it it has an undetermined effect on the group. And sin is a bearer of the consequences of God. I was, I I did a J-term at Asbury Seminary for one semester when I was at Southern. And at that seminary, my professor was Dr. Robert Coleman. Love to get him here sometime. He's pushing 90, but you would really be blessed. We got him to Hoffmantown in Albuquerque. Maybe we can get him here. Oh, I didn't know what to expect, but he, he, t- he wrote the book, One Divine Moment. And One Divine Moment is the revival that took place at Asbury Seminary. Asbury, I mean, the place where everybody's supposed to be, right where they're supposed to be. <laughs> it was in a chapel. And a young man got up here. I think he was a student, probably president. I don't quote me on that, but I can't remember. Somebody important to the, to the group. And he got up in front. He was supposed to lead him in prayer before the chapel service one morning. And when he got up there, he realized before he could pray, he needed to deal with some sin in his life that had been there for months and months and months and months. And he confessed his sin and asked God to forgive him and asked the body of Christ there to forgive him, the body of students. And when he did, the, oh, something broke in that, that service. And he said another one stood up and began to confess and another one stood up and began to confess and another one stood up and the chapel didn't end for about the next eight weeks. It kept on going 24 hours a day. People started coming from all over America. Paul Harvey made a journey there and said, I've never seen anything like it. Most divine thing that I've ever seen because of one person. One person. Newspaper man went down from London to report firsthand the marvelous Welsh revival it, it happened in, at the turn of the 20th century. On their, on our, he said, on, on our arrival in, in Wales, we asked a policeman where the Welsh revival was. They didn't know where to go. And drawing himself to full height, the policeman laid his hand o- over his heart and proudly proclaimed, gentlemen, the Welsh revival is inside this uniform. He had found the fire. He had found the fire. Let me ask you a question today. What about you today? I know what about me. I had to prepare the message. <laughs> I'm telling you what. I've already been to the woodshed. What about you? What about you? 
What's the sin in your life right now? You know good and well it's sin. You say, well, I'm not really sure. <laughs> really? Holy Spirit doesn't stutter. He speaks very clearly. But you're not willing to deal with it. You are not willing to deal with it. How could it be affecting your family? And how could it be affecting the whole body of believers here at the Wilton Park? So I guess that's my question. You feel like a coal that's isolated from the fire? Fire hadn't gone anywhere. He didn't move. We've moved. All he asks us is to come back. Deal with it before him. And watch. Grace transforms you. Mercy helps you bear up under the wrong choices that you've made. It's incredible how God works. And the freeing of his spirit in the midst will be something that will overwhelm us. Would you stand with me? Your head's bowed and eyes closed. With these thoughts on your mind, just, to, just draw that circle around yourself. Nobody's here but just you and the Lord. And Maybe if God puts on your heart something, you might want to come to the altar. Nobody's going to bother you. Nobody's going to embarrass you. You may be here when we go into the second service. It's all right with me. That's between you and God. Maybe you're here and you'd like to come to receive Christ this morning. For additional resources or to view our TV program, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 